家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播的。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. On July 24th, China published its defense white paper, the first one in four years. It includes strong language on Taiwan, a stark criticism of the United States, and aims to send this message to international audience more clearly than before. It also emphasizes the fact that the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, is the army of the Communist Party, and that China is a responsible power. My name is Johannes Heller, and to make sense of the defense white paper and broader security situation in China. I'm joined by Helena Legarda. She's an international relations expert at Merix. Hello, Helena. Hi. So, first things first, Helena. What are the main outcomes of the defense white paper? Well, I mean, I think you've gone through some of the sort of bigger topics already in the introduction. I think the main thing to keep in mind, and the paper is quite clear about this in the first paragraph, is that this white paper is targeted at an international audience. It says so explicitly, and the idea is to issue a bit of a report card on all the military reforms that have been going on in China to explain a little bit more about some topics that have been of concern to international China watchers and policymakers.、Uh, the idea being to give an impression of of transparency to a certain extent. So, for example, we have a relatively lengthy discussion in this white paper about China's. Defense budgets, for instance, they even provide a little bit of a breakdown, etc. All of that's quite new. There's also a series of appendices, which is also relatively new, and they mostly list things that support the other main takeaway, as you described earlier, that is that China wants to present itself as a responsible global power. So this is a little bit of a counter narrative to the United States. Storyline and arguments that China is actually a, an adversary, a potential threat to the international rules-based order. So, what China is doing with this white paper is to show that actually the destabilizing force is the United States, and China is the responsible power that is there to protect world peace and stability. So, going back to the appendices, there's a series of tables on, for example, treaties. On non-proliferation and arms control that China has signed on to, potentially a response to the U.S. pulling out of the INF treaty. There's another list of treaties on counterterrorism that China has signed on to. There's a list of UN peacekeeping operations that China participates in. So this is sort of the message that China is a responsible power, that China is not a destabilizing force, and if anything, the destabilizing force in the world right now is the United States. So in a way, it's Uh, a fight for the perception of international, other international actors. A fight between the United States and China,、uh, whose narrative could win. Do you think、uh, it reached its audience? Do you know how it was perceived internationally? Well, there, as far as I know, so far. Keep in mind that this white paper was only published a few days ago, so this is also quite recent. There hasn't been a lot of reaction from particularly governments internationally,、uh, but. I would imagine that it will be difficult for China to be successful in pushing this narrative of China as the protector of world peace and stability and as a responsible power, when the white paper simultaneously contains 
quite aggressive language on a few issues, particularly on, on Taiwan. So when you compare that with the role that China is claiming that it plays and it wants to play even more, there's a bit of a dissonance there. Uh, so I would think that this narrative will probably remain relatively unconvincing to most. Mm. Talking of Taiwan, um, the Defense White Paper was published only two weeks or so after the US State Department approved a sale of weapons to Taiwan. Uh, the deal worth about 2.2 billion US dollars was sharply criticized by China. Uh, in addition, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen visited Caribbean allies and on the way passed uh, through the United States also in July. Uh, do you think the timing and wording of the paper, as you said, it was very critical of uh, the United States and of Taiwan, uh, was influenced by these recent events? Well, I think it's unlikely that it was influenced by these events in particular. This is too recent. I would imagine that the paper was written and finalized well before this month. Uh, even if you look at the data that the white paper includes and mentions, the most recent data included, for example, in the tables in the appendices is from sort of late 2018. So I would assume that this was written at some point earlier this year or in late 2018. So I don't think it was influenced by these recent events, but it was definitely influenced by recent developments, just going back a little further. So we're talking about Taiwan and the sales of weapons and the election of the DPP. All of that goes back a little bit. So this is not the first sale of weapons to Taiwan from the United States since President Trump was elected, for example. The DPP, President Tsai Ing-wen, they've been in power already for a couple of years or three. There's new elections coming next year. So, of course, the paper and the, and the narrative is influenced by recent developments on these issues. But I don't think it's these particular ones that are so, so recent. All right. Um, I want to come back to Taiwan a little bit later. Uh, first, I would like to uh, talk about the development of the military in China in a broader sense. You just published uh, the China Global Security Tracker. The Chinese Defense White Paper is an important section of that, but it looks at the broader development uh, and situation of the Chinese security apparatus between January and June 2019. The paper, for example, states that the military spending has increased by 7.5% compared to 2018. How should we see this increase? How would you judge it? Well, in general, this increase just follows a pattern of defense budget increases. In China, it's been many, many years that def the defense budget has increased continuously year on year, although the pace is slowing down. So the defense budget used to write by two-digit percentages uh, every year. And for the last few years, it's been around the 7 to 8% margin. I think what's interesting is that when you compare the absolute numbers of how much China is spending on defense versus how much, for example, the U.S. spending on defense, there's still a really major gap. So the U.S. still spending a lot more. And that China's defense spending, according to official figures, and I will get back to this in a moment, has sort of remained along the same percentage of GDP. So it's rising at roughly the same rate as China's GDP. But something that I want to just note here, because I think it's quite interesting to keep in mind, is the fact that these numbers for China's military spending are based on official figures. 
And there's a few organizations out there, for example, CIPRI in, in Sweden or the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, that do their own estimates of how much they think China's actually spending on defense. And the numbers are actually quite a bit higher, I think 20 to 30% higher than the official figures that the Chinese government puts out. And a lot of this is down to the fact that there are certain categories of spending that China reportedly does not include in its official figures for the military budget. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that China's defense spending is increasing, has been increasing for years, for a couple of decades, is likely to continue to increase regularly. But it's hard to say precisely how much China is spending on its military. Mm-hmm. The PLA is undergoing a far-reaching modernization effort. Um, Is the PLA on its way to become a world-class army that can fight and win wars, as formulated by state and party leader Xi Jinping in August 2017, would you say? Well, that is the ultimate goal. Uh, As Xi Jinping said, the goal is for the PLA to be a world-class military that can fight and win wars by 2049 which is the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the People's Republic of China. So yes, the PLA is on its way. Uh, We can, of course, debate uh, how far along we think they are or they are not. And it's relatively difficult to measure, but it is important to keep in mind that they are progressing quite quickly. There is a lot of support, both political and financial, uh, inside the government for the military. And there's been a major modernization effort launched in China, both in terms of structural reforms of the PLA, but also the launching of the civil military integration strategy, for example, that have helped to push the PLA along. So they are absolutely on their way. Will they make it by 2049? Well, that depends, I guess, on how you how you measure how you what what is a world class military, for example. That is sort of difficult to say, but that's definitely the goal and they're going to keep working towards it. Could you talk a bit more about civil military integration, what it means and what steps China has taken in that direction? Uh, well, civil military integration, it's sort of the the linkage between China's goal of becoming a science and technology superpower and its goal to have a modernized military that can fight and win wars. Civil military integration sort of sits in the middle. And the idea is to try and involve China's private sector, which is often more flexible and more modern than in state-owned enterprises, try and involve them into the defense sort of industrial complex, which is dominated by big state-owned enterprises. So the idea is, again, to try and get the private sector and the public sector to cooperate on research and development of capabilities that have military uses, as well as civilian uses in most cases. Mm. So that's sort of the idea, to try and create a bit of a, a defense complex, a little more similar to what the United States has. All evidence points towards the fact that this is moving along and is working quite well. I mean, civil military integration is now a national strategy. So again, that means a lot of political support domestically and a lot of resources and money dedicated to it. 
important to keep in mind again is that civil military integration is actually not a new policy. It's something that China has been trying since the 80s, roughly. Um, they just hadn't been able to find the right formula to get the public sector, the state-owned sector, to cooperate with the private sector. So they hadn't been able to figure out how to do it. And it looks like this time around, it's working a lot better. This is Merrick's Experts. This is Merrick's Experts, and you're listening to my conversation with Helena Legata, Merrick's expert on international relations and author of the China Global Security Tracker. So, Helena, one potential area of conflict between the US and China could be Taiwan. The white paper emphasized that Beijing reserves itself the right to militarily incorporate Taiwan into the People's Republic. This seems fairly extreme a statement. Uh, how has China's rhetoric on Taiwan changed in the last years? Um, I think in general it's become a little more aggressive, but the broad lines of China's policy towards Taiwan have not changed. Sort of the idea that China is still pursuing reunification with Taiwan, that it considers Taiwan a renegade province to a certain extent, and that China does not renounce the use of force if it came down to that, that's not new. What is new uh, under Xi Jinping, and particularly since President Tsai Ing-wen from the Democratic Progressive Party was elected in Taiwan in 2016, is the sort of more public criticism and more aggressive statements that come out a lot more often. So, for example, this white paper actually contains explicit language criticizing the DPP, so the party, by name, specifically, and talks about how they're borrowing the strength of foreign forces to pursue independence, they are kind of separatists, etc. So there's a lot more extreme language in this white paper on the issue of Taiwan. And I think this should be read as a warning to the Taiwanese people, keeping in mind that there's presidential elections going on in Taiwan in 2020. So ideally for Beijing, the DPP and President Tsai Ing-wen would not get re-elected. So that would be an ideal scenario. So I think this is a little bit of a warning. Something else that it's new in terms of China's policy towards Taiwan, and this is not really statements, this is more actions, is the fact that the PLA has been running a lot of military drills and live fire exercises around Taiwan. In the Taiwan Strait, kind of flying over the island, encirclement drills, those have increased in frequency by a very large margin. I think since early 2018, there's been about 20 of them, at least, possibly more, um, both by naval forces and by the Air Force. And China very often, most of the time, actually, they claim these are just routine training drills. But it is relatively clear that these are meant to send a message to Taiwan. And again, the white paper, this last white paper, actually admits that. It says explicitly that the series of drills that the PLA has been running around Taiwan are meant to send a stern message and a warning to Taiwanese authorities. So we've gone from a policy that was mostly just words, really, uh, that hasn't changed much to actual 
actions and what looks like preparation for a potential military action against Taiwan. Um, I think it's important to note that I don't think launching a military attack against Taiwan is in Beijing's interest. I don't think they want to do that. But I do think that that's an option that they have and that if they feel that Taiwan is moving towards independence, they may just resort to it. What would be the aim of this more aggressive policy by Beijing? I cannot imagine that uh, the government in Beijing is seriously thinking that suddenly um, Taiwan will vote to have the CCP as their government or something. What would you think is the, the aim of these policies? Well, I think I think you're you're getting precisely at one of the contradictions in in the Chinese system. Uh, Beijing sees Taiwan as part of its own territory, so the discourse is as much directed towards the Taiwanese people and the international community as it is towards the domestic audiences. So I think this rhetoric, sure, is not going to convince anybody in Taiwan. If anything, is going to push them further away. As you said, nobody in Taiwan at this moment is going to accept China's rhetoric. I think that's basically an established fact. But on the other hand, Taiwan and China's territorial sovereignty is considered the core interest by the Communist Party. And therefore, they cannot be seen as sort of giving in on the issue. They need to stand up to the United States and the international community, and they need to demonstrate that both the CCP and the Chinese military will defend China's territory and reclaim it by force if needed. Uh, regime security and the legitimacy of the Communist Party depends on that, among several other issues. But it also rests on that idea. So that's sort of the contradiction. They need to maintain this sort of language while being very aware that they are not going to convince anybody in Taiwan. Hmm. Other people that have not been convinced by the rhetoric from Beijing are international uh, actors like the United States, France and Canada, who have respectively sent uh, military vessels through the Taiwan Strait to signal their support for the Taiwanese position. In view of an increasing number of Chinese military drills in the area as well, do you think it raises the chance of a military conflict between Western powers and China in this area? Well, I think the risk of some sort of military conflict obviously exists, uh, both in the South China Sea and in, in Taiwan. Those are two potential conflict points. Uh, I don't think that's anybody's goal at the moment. I don't think anybody's out there looking for a confrontation. But I do think, of course, that there is a chance of some sort of potentially an accident that then escalates or something along those lines. Although I also have to say that if Beijing were to decide to launch a military attack against Taiwan, it is very likely that that would lead to a military confrontation with the West. It's difficult to say whether Western powers in Europe or in the United States or Canada would actually get involved in defense of Taiwan, but it is very likely that they would in some way. Mm -hmm. This year is not only the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China, it is also the anniversary of the founding of NATO. It was created to provide collective defense assurances to countries in Europe and North America, mainly against the potential attack by the Soviet Union and later Russia. 
In a recent blog post from Eric's, you argued that NATO needs a China strategy. Why is that? Well, I think, as you just said, and as I mentioned in my blog post, NATO has for a very long time been quite focused on Russia, previously on the Soviet Union, but recently on Russia, and then on some threats to NATO's southern flank, sort of North Africa, Mediterranean, uh, Middle East, etc. Um, I think what we're seeing today is an international situation that it's in flux. I think what we were talking about, about China's rise, the PLA's modernization efforts, we're seeing China become a lot more active as an international security actor. And some of China's activities are already affecting NATO member states' interests, and they will continue to do so. If anything, they will affect them more. So I think this is the right time for NATO to start considering how China's international role and how China's sort of security actions and priorities are already affecting NATO's interests and how they will do so in the future as well. This is the right moment to start having a conversation about this. Uh, China may not be a direct military threat to Europe or to the US right now, but there's a lot of other things to consider, especially when we're looking about a China that is likely to become more and more important as an international player in future years. You just said that there would be other issues that should be considered, uh, not necessarily a military threat to, to Europe or the United States. What kind of areas are you thinking about there? Well, there's a few, but if you think, for example, about dual-use technologies, China's access to European or American know-how, and then how that's transferred back to China, and it potentially aids in the Chinese military's modernization. Or you think about Chinese pirate warfare actions. Uh, a lot of these things are issues that NATO already considers and tackles. It just they tend to be focused on Russia. I think this is a moment to sort of expand our 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 view a little bit, and also consider to what extent China is doing a similar thing. Putting China into the same basket as Russia doesn't it seem to indicate um, like a like a two aligned situation in the world? I don't think the idea is putting China in the same basket as Russia. Uh, but I do think we need to be aware of the fact that some of the strategies that China has and some of the actions that it's been taking are similar on certain issues and some other issues, not at all. And the idea wouldn't be for NATO to simply consider China an adversary or an enemy and come up with a policy to confront China. That's not the idea. But we need to be aware of the fact that some of what China does internationally can negatively affect NATO's interests, either as an alliance or in the, we're talking about individual member states. Either way. So we need to simply start considering it. We need to start thinking about it and coming up with a bit of a strategy, with a bit of a, with the stance. What is NATO's stance on China? Does NATO have one? What would NATO do if there was a conflict over Taiwan? Anything? Or not at all? Should NATO take a stance on Chinese cyber operations in Europe or in North America. There's a few issues to consider there that are already of relevance. And again, this is not about labeling China an enemy. That's not the idea at all. The idea is simply to start having a think about 
an issue that is already affecting us and that is likely to continue to affect us in the future. So in the end, it's about not what to do against China, but what to do about China now and in the future. Thank you very much, Helena Ligada. That was Helena Ligada, Merrick's expert on international relations and author of the China Global Security Tracker. You can find this study and other Merrick's publications at our website, merricks.org. My name is Johannes Heller. Thank you for listening and goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.